You know, I think I'm going to borrow a stand here. And there's so much on this this platform up here that I might stumble over that I'm going to come down here with you folks this morning. You know, it's a real privilege for me to be able to come and share with you this morning. This is a period of time that we as Christians celebrate. This is the most significant time in the Christian calendar. Next week is Palm Sunday. The week after that's Easter. Christmas is a, is a great time and we celebrate Jesus' birth. But there's no time on a Christian calendar that means as much as that morning when Jesus came out of the tomb exhibiting that he truly was the Christ, the Messiah. And during that Easter week, from Palm Sunday to Easter, there were many events, many things that happened that took place. Some of them are very familiar to us, like, you know, the Lord's Supper on Thursday night, typically, before that time when they came and arrested him in the, in the, in the garden. Good Friday. When we know Jesus went through that great agony of torture, his body beaten, lacerated, every blood in his body given, just expended for us as he was crucified on the cross. And of course, there's Palm Sunday and Easter. Those are the big events. But there are a lot of other things that took place. Things like just in this period of time of Lent, shortly before Good Friday, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the tomb. An example of the resurrection that Jesus himself was going to display to us and to the world, manifest to the world. The raising of Lazarus. And there was also, after he came in and riding on the, on the donkey on Palm Sunday, either the next day or shortly after that, he went into the temple and here he found all these animals and all these priests who were manipulating and taking advantage of the people and using the sacrificial system to their own benefit. And so he drove the animals, he drove, the, drove them out of, the, out of the temple and he said, it is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And we know that in that period of time, Jesus prayed. I won't ask for a response because we don't have time for a lot of interaction, even though I would like to have that. But what's a prayer that comes to your mind that Jesus prayed during this week? I would dare say the one that stands out to most of us is a prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the Bible says, as he prayed, he prayed in agony, such agony that he sweat as the were great drops of blood, his capillaries burst, that he just, the blood even spilled from his, from his body. And he was in agony, praying, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will, thy will be done. And we, we see his passion, we feel his passion, and he's praying this prayer. 
But the book of John, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention that prayer. But the book of John brings us to the high priestly prayer. And John, if we read there, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, we see there in chapter 13, it's at the time of the Lord's Supper. Jesus tells, Jesus washes their feet. That's another event that took place during his time. Jesus washing their feet. But he also tells them that they're all going to, they're all going to deny him. That they're going to deny him. And they all say, Lord, is it me? Someone's going to deny him. Lord, is it me? Am I the one? And uh, Peter, of course, being bold as he was, he says, Lord, I will never deny you. I, I'll die before I'll deny you. And Jesus tells him, you know, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. And we know that in that time, he tells Judas, Judas, go and do what you're going to do. And Judas leaves. And they get up and they start to Gethsemane. Now, these these men, these disciples, have been with Jesus three and a half years. I know you remember how Jesus, when he started his ministry, walking along the Sea of Galilee, he sees Peter and Andrew, and he says, "Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men." And just a little while later, along the he sees John and James, and he says, "Come follow me." What was it about Jesus? They, it says they left everything to follow him. What was it about Jesus that would be so engaging or so winsome that they'd be willing to leave everything to follow him? Was it just the demeanor, the way he carried himself? Was it his voice? Maybe there was such authority in his voice. You know, I can't help but think when they looked into his eyes, what they saw was such a depth of quality of love that they couldn't help it. It was like a magnetism that drew them. They wanted to be with him. And so for three and a half years, they spent this time with Jesus. They knew Jesus. They ate with him. They slept with him. They knew whether he snored or not. You know, they walked with him. Everywhere he went, everything he did, they were with him, except for a few times the Bible says that Jesus got away to pray, such as after John here, to John the Baptist's demise. But they spent three and a half years with Jesus, listening to him teach his parables, stories, the truths that he was endeavoring to instill within them. They, some of them had even been there on that great experience when Jesus was transfigured and he shone like the sun and Moses and Elijah came and they didn't know what to do until Peter blurts out oh, let's build three tabernacles one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah and he, they heard that magnificent voice this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased they had, they had lived with him they knew him but Jesus also knew them. Spending those three, three and a half years with them. He knew their different temperaments, their different personalities. He knew, he knew their attitudes. He knew when 
They flare up at one another and get upset at one another. He knew that there were times that they were prejudiced, especially towards the Samaritans. He knew that there was even the time when they came off the Mount of Transfiguration and there was this boy that the, some of the translations say was an epileptic who others say they had a demon, that they were trying to help this boy and couldn't do it. And Jesus said to them, you are men of little faith. They were men who Jesus knew intimately. That song we sang at the end just before I prayed is very true. You know, in the last verse of John chapter 2 says, Jesus didn't need anyone to tell, what, tell him what was in men. For he knew what was in man. He knew their thoughts. He knew their attitudes. And you know, one of the times Jesus told them, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in that same context, he said, out of the heart comes evil imaginations. Out of the heart comes murder. Out of the heart. And, and you know, if you remember, James and John wanted to call down fire on those places that wouldn't be received, Jesus said, what was that with murder? You know? Murder. It says, out of the heart comes adultery. Out of the heart comes fornication. Out of the heart comes theft. Out of the heart comes false witness. Out of the heart comes... Um, Oh, when, when you, uh, the word didn't come to my mind right now, but it's when you demean another person's character, slander. How the heart comes slander. Jesus knew these men. He knew what they needed. And when we read these chapters I just mentioned in the book of John, we come to chapter 14, and Jesus has told him, I'm going to go away, I'm going to leave you. And so this is what he says, do not let... Speaking to the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many, many rooms or many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, I, and if I go I prepare to prepare, prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me, that you also may be where I am. And then Jesus begins this discourse on the Holy Spirit because he knows he's going to be gone. But he's telling them, I'm going to send to you another counselor, another comforter, another meaning one like him who would be with them. This morning, Jesus is a prayer that I'm going to, I'm going to read here. and I, I'm, I'm not sure. I hope you folks will stay with me through this. But in John chapter 17, and if you want to take your Bible and turn there, we're going to look at this prayer that I believe Jesus prayed just as passionately as he prayed that prayer, Father, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. There in chapter 17, Jesus' prayer, first for himself, and then for his disciples, and then for you and me. That's here today. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I revealed you, revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed. They, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew certainly that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. For they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for all those who will believe in me through their message. I really think you're here this morning because you believed in the message that they brought. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May, them, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and see my glory and the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. There's at least two main focus or foci on this in this message. Jesus prays that we would be sanctified. And then he also prays that we would be one. We'd be in unity with him. You know this word sanctify. You know... When I was younger, we heard a lot more preaching about sanctification than we hear about today. And I've been told that this word doesn't resonate with people very much. They can't really connect with it. They can't really understand what this word is meaning, what Jesus had in mind when he prayed this prayer, this passionate prayer that we would be sanctified. I would like to have us look in the Old Testament, there at Exodus, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Moses wrote, The Lord said to Moses, 
consecrate to me every first male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. In the King James, that word consecrate is translated sanctify. You know, this, this translation says consecrate. I can't help but wonder if sanctification, if sanctify doesn't resonate with us today, does the word consecrate resonate with us? Do we understand what that word means? You know, my understanding of consecrate, and it would be interesting if we had time just to hear some of you define what you understand this word consecrate to mean. But, you know, because of time, we really don't can't do that. But I looked it up in the dictionary, and here's three thoughts that came from that dictionary. To be set apart. Consecrate, set apart. To dedicate to a specific purpose. Or to cause to be revered. Cause to be set aside, revered. You know, right now, in almost all the Jewish homes, they are going to their cupboards, and they are getting their crystal, and their their, uh, china, and their silverware, and they're polishing it up and they're cleaning it because they're getting ready for the Passover meal. That crystal and that china, that silverware, has been consecrated for the Passover feast, for the Passover meal. It's been set apart, set aside. It's been placed in this cupboard, this special place, for the whole year until the Passover comes around again, and then they get it out and they use it for the Passover meal. You know, that's kind of an idea of what this word consecrate means. It means to be set apart for a specific... It's not something we use every day. It's a spatial... It has a spatial place. That kind of... What's in this involved is us being consecrated. We're not just to be like everybody else. We're to be set apart. We're We're to be different. But look with me also there in Exodus chapter 19. Just a few chapters over from chapter 13. And there we read in in verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. That word sanctify is the same word as consecrate or consecrate is the same word as sanctify. But then he says, have them wash their clothes. And we see here connected to this consecration or to this sanctification is the idea, the concept of cleanliness. Cleanliness. Cleanliness is part of sanctification. And I'm going to get into this deeper as to what it is that we need to be cleansed from as we go through this message. But the part of sanctification is to be clean, to be pure. Then in chapter 31 and verse 13. Chapter 31, verse 13. Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. And the King James says, who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Holy. 
Holiness is a whole another part of the sanctification. To be holy. You know, for the longest time in my life, I thought holiness was the absence of sin. And there is that truth about that. Holiness is. You, they, they, don't, they are not compatible. They, they can't really exist together. Holiness and sin. But what I came to realize, and what I, I realized not through myself, but through a book a, that I read, is that when you read the Bible, you hear different ones calling out in their prayers, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy. He's been holy long before Adam and Eve was created. Long before sin came into the world. He's been holy. And as I thought about that, if God is holy, God is one, but He's also three persons in one. And when He said in the book of, of Genesis, let us make man in our own image, He's talking among Himself and He's interacting among Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's talking and they are in relationship with one another. And so holiness has to do with being in relationship with the Almighty God. We cannot be holy separate from God. He's a God who sanctifies us. You know, as I go through here, I want to—I've placed in your bulletin there a list of the names of God. This didn't come from me; it came from K. Arthur. But I want you to see the progression. It starts; it's chronological as it moves through here, and God reveals Himself to different ones with different meanings as He gives His name, as He speaks to them about who He is. And if you look at number thirteen, it says. Jehovah Makadishkam. He's a God who sanctifies. The God who sanctifies it. And you know, if you want, you could write in the New Testament, Paul, I mean John really said, he is Jehovah Agape. For there in 1 John, what did he say? God is love. Jehovah Agape. Well, I want us to move from this Old Testament thought of sanctification through this prayer that Jesus prayed passionately for his disciples and for us that we would be sanctified to Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 through 27 and I think it's in your notes there it says husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the words these thoughts these Old Testament thoughts that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, folks, I've been to quite a number of weddings. I've performed at quite a number of weddings. And I know when people get married, they're enamored with one another. Unless there's something wrong. And I've never performed a ceremony where the people... Um, that I could detect were not enamored and in love with one another. Infatuated, if not in love. Jesus puts this concept of sanctification within the context of marriage. As a groom and a bride, it's like this husband is praying for his wife. He's praying she would be sanctified and clean 
not having any spot or wrinkle. And I know, folks, as we get older, there's a few wrinkles that I, I get look in the mirror. But you know, he's praying that she would be pure, that she would be clean, that she would be sanctified, that she would not have any spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but to be holy and blameless. You know, Jesus, in Jesus' prayer for the, for the church, he prayed with the same depth of quality of love. This prayer, even though Paul was the one expressing it, it was as though Jesus himself were expressing his heart through the Apostle Paul for the church. And he prayed as a husband prays for his bride, that she would be cleansed, that she would be purified, that she would be made holy. And you know, I think we sometimes have missed it when we think of Easter and Good Friday and what Jesus really did on that cross, what he performed, what he, what he attained for us. Because here in this setting it says he gave himself for her. When did he do that? On that Good Friday when he gave his life. Hebrews 12, 13, 12 says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people, his church, with his own blood, that he gave every bit of it, suffered without the gate, without the gate he suffered. You know, in John chapter 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 7, it says, If we walk in the light as he's in the, in, light, in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus purifies, cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus gave himself so that we, his people, could be sanctified. And there in this prayer that he prayed there in John 17, he said, I sanctify myself. He set himself apart. He set himself on purpose for this very reason. Do you remember there was a, that time when some of the scriptures say that he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem? It was not just so he could die on the cross and we could be forgiven of our sins. He died on the cross so that we can be sanctified. The meaning of being set apart in this context of a marriage, a husband and a wife. You know, I've never known of any successful marriage when there was some other suitor involved. And so... One of the things that being set apart means is there's no other suitors. There's no one else. There's no, no one else that has my affection, my devotion, my love. And Jesus is praying for the church. You know, I heard this week, and I, I'm just taking this for as it was spoken to me. I haven't checked it out, but that the three big things in our culture today are television and the movies, basically Hollywood, the People magazines, you know, those kind of things. The other is the NFL, or maybe the NBA, what's going on right now. Or, for the younger generation, computer games. I know there's a young man that I had the privilege of leading to Christ and taking him into the church over in Boise. 
that's missing church this morning because he is addicted to computer, computer games. These things, folks, these are the things that would be other suitors. These would be the things that would be a challenge to this relationship with Jesus. These are the things he would be praying that we'd be sanctified, set apart. Well, also this word set apart would have to do with affiliation with the world. Especially anything that we could identify that Satan would be of influence in or have any, any part of that he would be involved with. It's not the majority, the majority of the world is not that way, but that aspect of the world where we can find wickedness and evil and greed and those things, that's what he's talking about. The world, we're to separate ourselves from the world. Things, even activities such as lying and profanity and theft and immorality and murder, we could go on and on. But also he's praying that we be freed from all the activities and attitudes that emanate from a nature that we have been that we have as a result of Adam and Eve's sin that happened in the Garden of Eden that came upon the human race because they resisted God and took on themselves, not the image of God, but they became developed into the, an image of the enemy himself. And so we have this nature. Paul talks about this nature there in the book of Galatians. He tells us that we're to sanctify, that we're to we're to crucify that sinful nature. But he says there in Galatians 5 that the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. There's sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, infactions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He says, I warn you, as I've told you before, folks, I have told you about this, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This nature, the very nature Jesus knew was in the disciples when he said, out of the heart come these things. But there in Ephesians chapter 5, there where he's, where he's talking, where Paul's talking about the husband loving his wife and Jesus sanctifying the church. He says, Jesus gave himself for the church to present her to himself as holy and blameless. Blameless. You know, that word blameless, I know I've been blamed for many things in my life. I've failed in relationships. I've failed in, well, I haven't, I haven't cheated on the income tax that I know of. But you know, that there's been so many things, so many ways that I've failed in sins. Folks, if you knew my life and I had time to tell you, you know that it's only the grace of God that I'm not in a penitentiary somewhere. But you know, Jesus, because of his sacrifice on the cross, we have the privilege of not being at fault. We have the privilege of being made blameless because he changes us. When, he ta- when Paul talks about there in, in Romans that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, when he tells the Corinthians that we're to be new creatures in Christ Jesus, he's talking about a change at the depth of the core of our very being. He's talking about affecting this sinful nature. And you know when he's talking about these, he's talking about perfection really. 
And I know in some settings the word, even the concept of perfection would almost be seen as blasphemy because they consider it an absolute perfection. And we know that no one can be totally like God. Nobody can be omniscient. Nobody can be omnipotent. Nobody you know, can be all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere. But, you know, I like what William Barclay says. It's there in your handout. Teleum, the Greek word from which we get the word perfect, has nothing to do with abstract and metaphysical and philosophical perfection. The basic meaning of teleos in the New Testament is always that the thing or person described fully carries out the purpose for which it was designed. Fully carries out the purpose for which it was designed. You know, Jesus, in Matthew, the last, in the fifth chapter, in the last verse of that chapter, says, Be ye perfect, even as I am perfect. Now, if we take it out of context, it can ruin us, really, because we can never measure up. If we, if we measure it by absolute perfection, it's not possible. But if we take it in the context, we see in that verses just prior to that, Jesus told them, love your enemies. And so perfection, if we're going to function the way we're designed, it has to do with us loving one another. It has to do with us being in community with one another. It has us being agape. God, Jehovah, agape. Not loving in the world's concept of love, but loving because of the presence of Jesus and his Holy Spirit in us with a consideration of others, unconditional, looking at not thinking of ourselves. That simple nature really tries to get us to do that, that tries to get us to focus on self and all of, how this is going to affect me or you know how people are going to think or one thing or another. But the reality is, if we are sanctified, Jesus is praying we'd be sanctified so we would function the way God has designed for us to function. So that we could be perfect, so we could be though expressing the love and, and the very being that he would have us to be. You know, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his Son. And you know, an interesting thought, if you look at verse 28, the one we love to quote, it says, For all things work together for good, or God works all things together for good, to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. But the purpose, purpose is that we be predestined to be like him. That's why he's that's what he's working in our lives. He's not working for us and things we want to happen. He's working that his perfection might be accomplished in us so that we would have his image. We'd be like him. And so as I sum this up, this biblical teaching concerning sanctification, this progressive Revelation. Jesus prayed for us. He gave himself for us. Passionately. You know there's places, there's a place in the scripture where it says Jesus even prayed with tears. He wept for us. He was passionate for us. To be set apart, to be dedicated, to be cleansed, to be purified, to be holy, to be blameless, to be like Jesus, to be perfect and to be one with him which when I come back next time, I'm going to talk to you about. Let's be in one in unity with him. Well, as I close here, 
I want to just ask you, when you look at what Jesus prayed for us, how would you say the church is doing today? How would you say, not just in the general church or the broader church, but how about here, right here in John Day, how is the church, are we functioning? Are we functioning out of our perfection? Are we, are we functioning out of sanctification? Maybe even more personal, how about your own life? Are you allowing this nature just to kind of rule your life? There are many today that are addicted to things. It's just a evidence of the nature they have within them. You know, I want to share just out of my own life a little bit. When I was young, I heard quite a bit of preaching about this concept of sanctification and the need for us to be sanctified. And there was, you know, I remember specifically coming to the altar at a, a senior in high school for that very purpose that the Lord would sanctify me. And you know... Paul writes to the Thessalonians through and through our whole spirit, soul, and body. You know, I prayed for that to happen. But you know, what I've come to see is that Saint in my life, because what I wanted and believed to happen there, I found later on in my life, there was this, this flare-up of this sinful nature in me. I thought I dealt with it there at the altar. It was still there. So what I've seen is there is both a crisis and a process in this sanctification. The crisis is, as I put there in your notes, first of all, we must believe that this is really what Jesus meant when he prayed that we'd be sanctified. And we must believe that he wants it for us. He prayed for you and for me that we'd be sanctified. And then, when, we, when the sinful nature flares up in whatever way it does, we have to acknowledge it. We can't deny it. We can't just go on, pretend it doesn't happen, try to get along with our spouse or our other relationship without dealing with it. You know, we've got to acknowledge that it's present. And then we've got to confess our failures and our faults and Maybe even our unbelief. That, that we didn't really believe God would do this. He would work this deep. But this is a grace, this is a grace work that God does within us. And so when we really come to believe and know that this is for me, and we have acknowledged this need and we've confessed it, we have to believe, we have to receive it. We receive him. It's not an entity. But it's Him. You know, that's the other aspect of this message that I'm going to be preaching next time. But we have to receive Him. The one that Jesus was promising to the whole, to, to, to His disciples that would come be with them. We have to receive Him in our life. So what I've seen is there's a crisis when I came to the reality that this is really true and Jesus wants this for me. Then I came to realize he works this out in my life. And what he does is if there's any little bit of that sinful nature, he allows things to happen 
and they'll flare up. And I find myself having to go back to that altar, acknowledging my need, acknowledging my failure. It's a process. But I want to testify to you folks that the thing that drove me to my knees to be sanctified for, and I'll probably have the enemy on me after this, but I can tell you I am free in my soul and my spirit from now today. I have learned one of the things I've learned as I get older is time is of no essence to God. It doesn't really matter whether we get to get it all at one time or whether we allow him to work and work and work. What, a ma- what matters is that we're willing and we desire and we want his prayer to be answered and fulfilled in our hearts and in our lives. I know there's a, probably a good portion of you that are here this morning that really need to think about this, but I also know that the Holy Spirit may be speaking to someone. And so, Jamie, I want you to come. We're going to sing three verses of this old hymn. And I'd like to have us all stand as we sing this. And if the Holy Spirit has been faithful to anybody present here, just as I have expressed about my own life, there's a place right here for you to pray and seek God. Acknowledge your need. Believe that He will fill you with Himself and sanctify you through and through your spirit, soul, and body. Preserve blameless. That's the way I want to meet Him. I trust that's what's in your heart as we sing I ask you to respond whatever way the Holy Spirit is speaking to you
because we are so grateful for this privilege we have of being in relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, how you manifested your love to us. Thank you, Lord, for how your Holy Spirit communicates your love to us, your desire, your passion. And Lord, as we go from here this morning, may your Holy Spirit confirm these truths from your word to our hearts. And may your will be done, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.